0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Reporter Molly Wood has covered economics, money, and tech for years. Her latest project focused on climate
1: survival. There is this sense that climate coverage is like vegetables. Like it's the kind of bummer thing that you have to put on the plate. And audiences don't respond to it. That's a big reason why it took me so long to start doing climate coverage in earnest because people thought no one was going to listen.
0: Now she's moved out of journalism and into venture capital where she sees greater potential for climate solutions through focused investments.
1: I spent six years on a business show, and I think economics really matters. In no way do I think we need to get rid of every other solution. But capitalism is a very effective global solution for making huge change, good or ill.
0: Molly Wood on tech, money, and survival. Up next on Climate One. After a 20-year career as a tech reporter for CNET and the public radio program Marketplace, Molly Wood has come to see the climate crisis as an engineering problem requiring a lot more investment. In one of her last journalism projects, she produced the acclaimed documentary podcast How We Survive for Marketplace. She recently left that program to begin a new career in venture capital. Molly Wood joined me recently for a conversation recorded in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. In the final episode of How We Survive's First Season, she says that there's one possible future where we adapt to climate change and avoid the worst impacts, and there's another possible future where we don't. She visits a squatters community in Southern California known as the Slabs, where people are barely surviving. I asked her what it felt like to be in a place where collapse has already happened.
1: A lot of my reporting and thinking in life is inspired by sci-fi. And one of the things that I had read as part of sort of developing this series was Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower um, trilogy. And we were planning this trip to this area of Southern California because we were visiting, you know, these big lithium deposits and doing these stories on battery technology and sort of realized that there was very nearby this community known as the Slabs. It's federal land where people live for free. When you kind of head out there, there's a sign that says it's the last free place. And it's outside of Palm Springs. It's unbearably hot. The people who live there measure their time in summers. They Mm. say, you know, if you've been here four summers, for example, that means Mm. you've been there four years because the summers are the hardest to survive. And, you know, people are there for various reasons. None of them are Good. Some people go because they want to sort of test their survival skills, but that's very uncommon. It's, you know, in the case of the people that I interviewed at the Slabs, they were there because of, you know, a domestic violence-induced attempted murder, and they were fleeing the person who had attacked them. And so it's this kind of parable of the sower story come to life, to be there, but also to see people surviving and figuring out and really really innovative ways to survive in the most extreme you know, temperatures that America at least has to offer.
0: In the middle of this blistering desert, Peter, Ryan, and Jesse, these slabbers, they call themselves or they're called, have cobbled together a little camp they call Rabbit Side out of wood, an old RV, odds and ends, and eight solar panels. This and a bunch of golf cart batteries has to provide all their power needs. Let's listen to a bit of this episode which we've edited for time.
2: We have to cart in every calorie or drop of water that this takes to survive. Mm -hmm. And then including, like the water isn't even out here naturally, so without that canal, without our hands doing all this and transferring that water around, none of this would last three months. If we were to just walk away, all of this would just dry up.
1: How much time as like a relative percentage would you say you spend like talking about powering your home?
2: Uh, I I mean, it kind of feels like it comes up at least once a day. At least, yeah. 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 To like, oh, do we need to turn off these items or like, is this, can we, can we keep running this thing right now or is that going to have to be turned off because we have to conserve to last us overnight? Uh, You got to do a lot of stuff, a lot of learning and it's, and it's a constant battle, but Mm -hmm. it's good to learn now before, uh, before everybody has to learn real fast.
1: Before everybody has to learn real fast. Because, like I said when I got to Slab City, this is what the end of the world looks like. This
2: place, ultimately, is just kind of like the last default option for a lot of people. So, like, some people, like, they're on the run for something. Some people, like, they couldn't take care of themselves in any other situation. So, like, they, they lost their housing or, or whatever.
1: And while Rabbitside is a triumph of invention, ingenuity, art, it is not a utopia. It's a future that we should try hard to avoid. Out here, says this little group, you have to have dogs to warn you if someone's coming or to protect you if they do. There's a baseball bat by the makeshift door. If you hear screaming at night, they say, you do not go outside. This, Jesse says, is the worst kind of preparation for the worst case scenario.
2: Eventually, it's going to end up being kind of every man for himself. That's what it looks like. We don't want
3: to be in a bunker um, and, you know, and just be eating rations
1: and pretend like we're already living in end times. But we do want to set ourselves up in case it does become every man for himself.
0: So people don't have to learn real fast. How likely do you think that scenario is and for how much of the world?
1: You know, I mean, we're talking at every year, there's some new crescendo of climate events. We're talking at a point when, How many, 33 million people in Pakistan are learning that right now. Mm. I spent some time on Monday, you know, I'm Mm. great in the relative scheme of things and spent some time on Monday night sleeping outside of my house because the power was out for seven hours and it it felt unsafe to be in the house. And so at least I went outside where it was only 95 and, you know, it could feel like somewhat cool. It was legitimately scary. I think people are getting closer and closer to these realities all the time and starting to experience them. With increasing regularity and, and no one is a hundred percent immune.
0: And so collapse can happen incrementally in different places at different times, kind of one sort of tile at a time.
1: Or what's that famous phrase, slowly at first and then all at once?
0: Right. Um, it's not
1: going to be a bummer the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's we're just starting. For down. sure. That's
0: because I <laughs> promised talking about light and dark, we're going to do both. Um, Everyone's like, Whoa. <laughs> Yet it's real. Pushing it away doesn't make it (laughs) go away. There's another set of scenarios where it's not every human for themselves, where people use technology uh, we already have to help each other. You tell a story about Hurricane Ida in New Orleans last year. When the storm hit, there were about 200,000 people who did not evacuate, including Devin DeWolf, who stayed because his wife is an ER doctor. For many, the aftermath of the hurricane was even worse than the 150-mile-an-hour winds. Here's Devin DeWolf talking with you and how we
2: survive. We were without power for 10 days. Every day it was easily over 110 degrees. That is really challenging when you can't cool down anywhere. Living without air conditioning, you know, it's fatal, potentially.
1: At least 10 people died in New Orleans just from the heat. The worst
2: thing, what I I personally think was the worst, was just looking at elderly people sitting in the shade, kind of quietly suffering. The heat, you know, it it took a toll on my 36-year-old body. But, you know, if you're 80 or 90 years old, that that is really, really, really difficult to get through.
1: Then there was a shortage of food and water.
2: There are supply chain issues. No one has gasoline. Um, People start to go hungry. And at the same time, there's massive food waste happening all around you. The longer you go in that uh, situation, you start to see people on edge, losing their temper a little bit.
1: People are more and more stressed out. They're getting more and more desperate. But Devin did not lose power. His house was the only one in the neighborhood where the lights stayed on because it runs on batteries.
2: Our house had solar panels and uh, two batteries My house went through 10 days with no power, easy peasy, because after the hurricane, the sun will rise again.
1: Devin's house became the neighborhood charging station and literally helped save lives.
2: Mr. Roy needed an oxygen machine, so I ran an extension cord uh, from my house to his house to take care of that. I've got another elderly neighbor, um, and I hooked up his refrigerator during the daylight when I had solar. And then on the front porch, uh, I just put an extension cord connected to a power strip and just a little sign that said, you know, phone charging station. Open 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day and easily hundreds of people came by to charge their devices.
1: And it's a good thing Devin had the solar panels and the home batteries because he says outside help never came.
2: There's no police, there's no 911, there's no any support of any kind. We never saw any FEMA or city government or state government show up at all.
1: Devin says you have to fend for yourself in almost every way, and that includes generating your own backup power when the grid fails.
2: So I think the smartest thing we can do in Louisiana is just start to install solar panels and batteries everywhere.
0: Molly, well, I hear in that a um, mix of technology, self-sufficiency, and altruism working together. Mm-hmm. But elsewhere in the series, you express some skepticism about altruism, saying that humans are human. So I'm curious, how much do you think people will choose that path of putting their electricity out to help others rather than hoarding and, 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 and thinking about themselves only?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, that Mr. Roy story makes me tear up every time I hear it including now um i think humans really do want to help each other right up until the point where it gets too dangerous to do so you know and i think you sort of see that over and over in fiction and in real life and i mean that's like seems to be the entire plot of the walking dead which i'm too scared to watch (laughs) um and so as with everything i think there's probably not one answer it's where you are what community you happen to be in what works what doesn't work how dangerous this and you know the situation is But certainly what he described, and he was gentle in our conversation, but what he was saying was that they had managed to create sort of an island of cooperation and a really magical scenario, but that there were other things happening in the the city during those 10 days that were incredibly dangerous.
0: Yeah, I think as climate kind of collapse unfolds, we'll see the best and worst of humanity. I think of the Cajun Navy. These people, when Louisiana floods and they're driving around their boats and they're taking grandma out of the house and like, it's like, it's wonderful. Yep. And then there's others who are trying to exploit the volatility and profit and, and, you know, and, and extract and make suffering people even worse off. We see both of those. You were a tech reporter, then a finance reporter before covering climate. Was there an aha moment when you realized you needed to be talking about climate? Was this you've been in Silicon Valley a long time? When did climate really get
3: you?
1: I can't sort of pinpoint the moment when it started to, it just sort of over the years started to feel really acute, like a story that I wasn't able to talk about. And it was getting more and more frustrating as it, you know, because I I feel like my entire adult life, it had been part of my conversation when I was a kid. It was like the ozone layer and it was, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of the early nineties. And so our hairspray made us feel really guilty because there was a lot of it. And, you know, it was always this kind of low level awareness that got more and more and more acute as it became obvious how much worse it was gonna get. And then I had this, I'm lucky enough to share a hairdresser with a f- really famous climate scientist from Berkeley, Inez Fung. And she was telling him, he relayed this story to me, I went on to interview her for this series, but he was telling me that, you know, in this conversation with Inez Fung, who was who was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize with Al Gore for Inconvenient Truth, um, she was saying, you know, I can write IPCC reports until the end of time, but the truth is, we have reached a tip. We have already tipped. There are certain parts of the climate emergency that are not going to be avoided. We now know that the mm-hmm. most recent, I think, IPCC report laid that out as clearly as ever. But this was 2015 or 2016, um, and she said so. I she was sort of laying out this plan to devote a big part of her career to studying the hundred-year effects, and she said she made this off-handed comment she said, it's an engineering problem now. Hmm. And when he was telling me the story, that was the moment, the aha moment where I said, that makes it my story. Because I had been a tech reporter and sometimes when you cover tech and the world is happening all around you, you know, I covered business, which is obviously a huge driver of many things, but you feel like you're outside the main story. And that comment made me realize, and I'm a pretty solutions oriented person by nature too. It made me think like, maybe there's just a different way to look at this. Maybe they're is a tech story here and maybe there is a survival and a solution story. And so my initial entree was actually adaptation and resilience. That's why I called that series, How We Survive, because the eight episode podcast was the culmination of about four years of kind of ongoing reporting under that name. Mm -hmm. And it really was a very literal approach to like, okay, well, how are we going to not die when things start to get more and more terrible? And I had read Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, which is about, you know, New York City post two 50-foot sea level rises. And he makes this offhanded note in his book about diamond coating around the bottoms of buildings in submerged Manhattan to keep the water out so that they can still keep doing business. You know, it still is like the global financial center. And... It was those, I really started thinking to myself, well, is anybody working on the diamond coating? <laughs> because if they are, I want to talk to them. And that's what set me on this on this road.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation with podcaster and investor Molly Wood. When we come back, one of the hard truths she learned while producing the climate documentary podcast, How We Survive.
1: The hardest thing about tackling the climate crisis is going to be like all the humans involved in tackling the climate crisis. <laughs>
0: That's up next when Climate One
3: continues. Hi, Climate One listeners. We're working on an upcoming show about climate migration and want to know if you've moved within the U.S. for climate reasons, maybe to a new place with a better climate outlook. Or maybe you're concerned about a move you made for other reasons, like family or a new job, that took you to a place with more climate risk. Call our listener voicemail line to leave us a message with your story, and we may use it in an upcoming episode. The phone number can be found on our website, climateone.org, on the Contact Us page. Thanks.
0: Bollywood spent years at Marketplace, a show focused on business and economics. I asked if there was resistance to covering climate, which has been seen as an environmental and scientific story.
1: It helped that I wanted to come at it from the tech angle. It also helped that I had almost complete editorial control over Marketplace Tech, the show that I hosted at that time. So it was a very easy thing to start doing. It was hard to find startups and investors. And, you know, it was sort of a slow, we were asking questions that people weren't yet starting to answer in a really real way. And it probably took a solid year and a half to two years to really even launch the reporting because it took so long to convince people that it was going to be worthwhile to go to Silicon Valley and knock on doors and say, hey, you guys promised us you were going to save the world. What are you doing about the world? Because reporters and editors have a kind of an aversion sometimes to questions that don't have answers.
0: Hmm. And I wonder, you know, at Marketplace, which is, you know, it's the the kind of business show on public radio, which is, you know, it follows the markets. It obviously believes in markets. If there was, you know, um, when did you come to think that, like, wow, markets are part of the problem? Capitalism, you know, climate is the ultimate market failure because mm-hmm. we don't pay the pro- we use the the sky as an unpriced sewer. We don't pay the full price of the things that we do and the things that we buy. It's a market failure. So did. Did that ever get uncomfortable for you? Or when did you start to realize that that connect?
1: I think if anything, it was the opposite. I think what I found was that so many of the conversations about climate in media, because media, you know, even you see it still, heaven help us and figure it out, editors, there is this sense that climate coverage is like vegetables. Like it's the kind of bummer thing that you have to put on the plate and audiences don't respond to it. That's a big reason why it took me so long to start doing climate coverage in earnest, because people thought no one was going to listen to it. Chris
0: Hayes tweeted once that climate episodes are tick terrible ratings.
1: Right. Like if you want to not fill a room, talk about climate, or if you want to not have anyone listen to your story, talk about climate. So I started thinking, okay, well, we always come at it from this huge recitation of unsolvable problems. We always talk about how capitalism is the disaster, it is the the market failure, it's the thing that's created this problem, greed is the reason that we'll never get out of it. And I started thinking, well, what if we thought about, one, technology and literal survival, because it's here, figure out how to not die, but also... It seems like kind of a big business opportunity.
0: Well, John Doris said this is the biggest opportunity of wealth creation in our lifetime, right? Yeah. Legendary VC.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. And when you have a, you know, potentially affected market, which I now know as an investor we call a total addressable market of an entire planet, right. there's a lot of incentive and and when money is an incentive, change can happen. And so I really started pitching it as a business story. Like what is the business here? And there always be, you know, a big thing we talked about at Marketplace a lot was winners and losers. And in every big developing story or trend or disaster, there are winners and losers. And so we thought it's, it's a good framing for how to, who to talk to and how to f- create stories. And that really led me to sort of look at it more and more as a who are the businesses who think that they can make money and make change
0: right and now it's you know there's that's pretty well established wall street's on board has been for a while how did reporting how we survive affect you personally
1: um it should have provoked more climate anxiety than it did and it did in some cases certainly members of the team producers got really upset about it i think at that point i had been doing three or four years of climate coverage Anyway, so I maybe had some scar tissue, although there are plenty of climate reporters who will tell you that they've had to stop covering it. But I genuinely, the more we talked about it, and and I think it's because of the focus, felt and feel optimistic talking about solutions. It is encouraging to me, and this might just be my personality, but to be able to take a problem and break it down into its component parts. Like we know the use of fossil fuels is it, right? That's sort of the whole ball game. Like what do we need to transition away from fossil fuels? Increasingly experts are like, oh, we need to electrify everything. Okay, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. We do that with renewable energy. However, there was this realization that renewable energy was intermittent. You have to store it if you want it to be effective for a long time, and then to store it, you need batteries and electric cars run on batteries. Okay, what's in batteries? Lithium. Cobalt, right? You just, it is actually an encouraging process to say, any problem I wanna solve, I make it smaller.
0: Well, and psychologists say that that doing something makes you feel better.
1: Yeah, right? and that's probably it. And we were making beautiful music for our podcast and scripting and, you know, and it was, and we were out in the field reporting and talking to people and some of them were hopeful. Now, none of that is to say, I would say the greatest, the biggest takeaway for me Doing how we survive was that you know people are always going to be the enemy of people. That the hardest thing about tackling the climate crisis is going to be like all the humans involved in <laughs> tackling the climate crisis.
0: <laughs> Humanity. This well, this is a human-created problem, yeah. right? So, yeah, humans. That's why yeah, the cognitive part of that. So, you know, since producing how we survive, you've pivoted from journalist to investor. Why?
1: Yeah, I. Started my time as the host of Marketplace Tech with a big series about venture capital and how it works and got to know a lot of VCs. We did a lot of reporting for how we survive on the venture capital industry and how it you know, had or had not tackled climate over the years. And I think it was sort of a combination of timing and a feeling that I wanted to be more proactive. Like I wanted to actually be implementing solutions. I so wanted to have boots on the ground.
0: Dispersing information was no lo- not sufficient. Right.
1: I sort of felt like I don't have time to change minds.
0: Or inform people. Mm-hmm. And so your transition was from information to money and action, and that's you've been exposed to these people
1: and right. no. I just happened to know one who wanted to hire me to write checks. So <laughs> I lucked out there. <laughs> that helps.
0: So what can money do that information
1: can't? Money can actually enable a solution to be born. I mean, every day I talk to these, I use this really messed up metaphor sometimes for all the companies that we talk to because I'm a very early stage climate tech investor and we call them baby turtles. I call them baby turtles <laughs> because we just, we send them out toward the sea and we hope they make it.
0: And you know most will not. And die. we know
1: most will not make it, but we hope that they will. But I will tell you that despite, and we will get, talk about capitalism, and we will talk about its ills and the problems that it's caused, this is the most hopeful job I have ever had. I sincerely, and, and I say that with respect to my former colleagues, particularly in contrast to journalism, where the job of journalists is to be skeptical, but the mm-hmm. orientation of journalists has become to be only skeptical. And it is so frustrating and tiring to have to find everything that's wrong.
0: Yeah. My wife tells me all the time you're a downer. I'm like, yeah, journalists write about the planes that crash. They don't write about the planes that land safely.
1: Right. But then they start to expect that every plane is going to crash and they start like looking around the plane for what's going to go wrong. And it's, so wonderful to be in. And it seems, I know it seems antithetical to what you know about venture capital, but it is sincerely an optimistic industry. We sit around and instead of, I don't know, laughing at the naive absurdity of people who think that something's going to be like this because our 20 years of reporting tells us it's for sure going to be like this, we're like I remember being at listening to a a series of presentations by founders in our office and a woman got up and started speaking and she didn't seem very prepared and she was kind of awkward and she had a little bit of a strange delivery. And, and our, our general partner, our boss, Jason, who, you know, a lot of people know as sort of a really brash, like
0: swashbuckling.
1: Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, not everybody loves him. Sent us all a slack that said never underestimate anyone. And we invested in her and it, Truly is, especially, so that's like investing writ large. I'm talking to people who are trying to save the world. I'm talking to people who are like, I'm taking this food waste and I'm using mushrooms to convert it into a gluten-free flour because I was inspired by the fact that my mom is a diabetic and there's all this food that she can't eat. And it turns out mushrooms can, you know, convert just about anything into anything else. And so we've created a new feedstock at a time when we might not be able to grow food in huge portions of the world.
0: Right. And yet social impact investing, seeking profits as well as social benefit is a growing part of capital markets these days. Yet you decided not to join that realm and even rejected a company because they were a B corporation that's bound to pursue financial and social benefits. So I'm curious why you didn't choose the sort of social impact path, given that you're so climate mission driven. Was it because you kind of fell into it and Jason offered you a job? I mean, sure,
1: (laughs) that's definitely part of it. You know, there's who is trying to hire you at any given point. It has been, however, really interesting to then have those conversations since then and to. There's something very clean about venture capital, and it's like if it works, it makes a lot of money, and if it makes a lot of money, it works. And when you look at the scale of the change that needs to happen, it needs scale. It needs, you know, it needs to be consumer solutions that everybody adopts, not because they feel good about it, but because it's the best possible thing to buy and do. Not in a, in a moral way or not in a, you know, in a, a way about, of caring about the world, but just like it's the cheapest, best, most awesome thing. All my friends are doing it. Tesla's look super cool. I do not have one for all of the reasons. <laughs> but it worked. That worked. That created scale.
0: And so you think you're going for like the real alpha model because they'll make the biggest things happen fastest.
1: I think that if you look at lasting times when there have been lasting change in certainly America and across the world, it's always included a combination of awareness, activism, and economics. And I spent six years on a business show and I think economics really matters. It is in no way do I think we need to get rid of every other solution, but capitalism is a very effective global solution for making huge change, good or ill.
0: So Silicon Valley and the venture capitalists that fund it have sold us on a lot of stories that didn't quite turn out to be as they presented. You, know, you fl-
1: journalist, you. So,
0: so <laughs> the, for example, the internet will democratize information. Yeah. Uh, now we know it's dominated by the FANG companies, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Another VC story, uh, Silicon Valley, that ride-hailing apps will reduce car ownership and congestion. We know that Uber and Lyft increase congestion. Yeah. So why should we believe them this time when they're saying we're going to solve this energy problem? We're going to solve this climate problem.
1: Oh my God. Who am I right now? Because those are edge cases in an entire world filled with companies that venture capital has created that aren't ruining everything. You know, it's, it's, there will always be unintended consequences. There will be terrible outcomes. God help me. I'll probably back somebody who is awful. I hope not, but it could occur, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that I should do nothing. And it doesn't mean that, you know, these solutions can't be born and be incredible. I mean, this is also the industry that has produced impossible foods and beyond burgers. And, you know, I mean, like there are 42 climate tech companies that are worth over a billion dollars, 42 climate billionaires, uh, unicorns. Some of them will have bad ends. Capitalism is basically like any other organism unregulated and left to grow unchecked. It will 100% kill us all 100%. I have no illusions about that. I do not think this is like the winner. But it's the system that we have in on the globe at the moment that has produced the most outcomes.
0: So are you personally conflicted about becoming more of a capitalist, you used to cover capitalists. Now you're becoming one.
1: Yeah. How you definitely it's a really confusing time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not just that I went from journalism to venture capital. I went from public radio <laughs> to venture capital. Like I legitimately, I've been keeping this audio diary of, you know, like entering the white hot center of the culture wars like, and becoming a capitalist at the same time. And it's a really weird time. I'm not going to.
0: And super dominated by tech bro, alpha, testosterone land. Yeah, for sure.
1: I resisted venture capital for a lot of years for that exact reason. I I was like, do I really want to go to parties with the worst people in the world? Sorry, new colleagues, <laughs> wherever you are. I don't mean you. So but but that's where we are
0: and rather have them with us than against us. Right. Well, and, and
1: that, to be fair, that is before I knew I like when Jason, you know, made an overture about me coming to work there, I said, what do you think about doing climate tech investing and he was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm all for it. So had I gone to venture capital earlier, I might have felt much more conflicted. But the more, there's been this incredible rush of people going into climate investing, and they're amazing. I mean, they really are genuinely phenomenal people. So I feel like I'm actually in a cohort of this industry that, that, yes, like everybody who's doing it understands that the goal is for everyone to make a lot of money. But also create something incredible my dad I was talking to my dad about this I mean this was like not something that would ever occur to me but my dad was like I love that you're this is so amazing there's like there are going to be companies that are going to be born. you're you're making you're creating jobs and it was just and I was like wow you're actually that's true Mm that we have an internal slack for founders for the you know the people that we have funded and they have a channel in the slack called small wins and they'll post things that just are incredible. Like we made our first hire today. We hired five people today. This is, you know, it's so we're actually doing it. We're growing. We're creating a real thing in the world. It's some of it, you know, I I don't think that making stories and making videos and making podcasts, we are, we are creators. We were making a real thing and a real product. This is that times. It's
0: different. Yeah. It's not, uh, yeah. It's just
1: a real Right. Founders are, you know, we only hear about Adam Newman and Travis Kalanick and the people who, you know, don't have any morals or like do these terrible things in the world or, or get out over their skis and commit fraud trying to cover it up. Or... But founders as a class of people are phenomenally hopeful. And my God, do they work harder than any of the rest of us.
0: Mm-hmm. According to Bloomberg, venture capital and private equity invested more than 53 billion in climate tech last year. Where's that going? How much of it is motivated by absolving guilt, fear?
1: (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. and a lot of people, I think, realized that the worst case can occur. And all of a sudden that really did genuinely catalyze, I think, a lot more awareness and a lot more money around climate. Like they said, okay, well, the next apocalypse... Right. We just had one. And the next apocalypse is climate change. Yeah. And a lot of new people and new money came into climate tech investing, which is wonderful. I do not doubt at all that fear is a huge part of that. But if you think venture capitalists are sitting around feeling guilty about stuff.
0: No, no, there's huge opportunity, Definitely not. huge opportunity <laughs> in this disruption, wealth creation. Um, and this,
1: by the way, is and not some are I'm I'm being very flip. Some are some really I know of several venture capitalists who actually retired early from, you know, just being VCs to to start to work on climate to say, OK, I got to do something good with.
0: Right. And I think this was before you were in this, but I've been I'm old enough and been in this long enough to remember when, you know, Kleiner Perkins had their first green tech fund and Vinod Kosla was out there talking about this. And, you know, the Google founders were saying, Renewable energy is you know, less than coal, and there was. this is not the first time Silicon Valley has said, we're big on climate. Right. But for the first time they did it, they got burned because they realized that steel and concrete is not software, and it's harder, capital investment, and it's regulated. It's harder than they thought. So you think they've learned this time that
1: like from that first time to do it this time. Um, there's certainly more interest in software than I wish was the case. Although what I think we're gonna find, we'll probably have learned that lesson and then there will be 50 other things we screw up. That's just sort of the nature of, of cycles. Um, but you know, it's been interesting that John Doerr, for example, Kleiner Perkins invested, I think, a billion dollars in various solar technologies and other renewable energy. It was really, really focused on renewable energy, that early boom. And I think the life of a venture capital fund as a legal structure, as 10 years. That's why VCs always talk about this 10 year life cycle of things. Mm-hmm. And it's because there literally is a, an end date of 10 years when investors want their money back, mm-hmm. plus mm-hmm. hopefully all of the money you've made them in that time. Over 20 years, though, John Doerr's investments made Kleiner Perkins $2 billion on the original billion. So, you know, we talk about it as a really big failure, but it a took lot of those, longer
0: than I expected. And ultimately, it's like. Yes. Yeah.
1: But a lot of those businesses still exist. And, you know, I I think you could argue that that is when the solar industry was born. And although it was like awkward baby deer steps, now we have something that's pretty mature and that's that's a good thing overall. What I think that we're gonna now figure out is that a lot more entities are finally getting serious about climate, including governments, including businesses, including Wall Street, you know, the SEC, central banks will probably create a lot more change. Um, than we even realize they are, even more than governments, because politics is messy about all of this. We might find that there are certain categories that venture capital is better suited for. And maybe some of that is software, and that that's fine. And maybe it is better for governments and universities to fund hard science and deep research. And I've met with several companies that are trying to do like really complicated things about microbes and, you know, alternative rocket fuels and really phenomenal things that might be outside my scope or ability to invest in, because they will take longer than 10 years to pay off. But there are also a lot more funds dedicated to that kind of investing now, and they have longer fund structures, or they have different kinds of investors who are willing to wait longer. So I think there's more diversification in the types of investing that VCs are gonna do, and we might just be trying to figure out, like, what's the part that we should do compared to the part that governments should do?
0: Coming up, ways venture capital can put power in the hands of us all.
1: I really profoundly believe in the power of the consumer to drive change. We always talk about this collective problem and how individuals can't possibly have an impact and that lets us kind of off the hook for, it's just business's problem to fix, which it is, and also ours, right? We'll be right back.
3: Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news.
0: Before the break, Molly Wood and I were discussing the role of government funding for research as opposed to venture capital, which she is now involved in. I asked her to share her thoughts on the potential impact of the Inflation Reduction Act.
1: That is an absolute game changer. It is a huge deal because all of that is the research that the reason that scientists are coming to venture capitalists, which shouldn't be happening, (laughs) is because governments haven't been funding science. Right. You know, we all know that that's not the right model. That there's no that we are going to have to say like, I'm really sorry. This is a genius idea. It could probably change everything, but I just don't have that kind of time, and my investors don't want me to do that. That's an awful thing to be saying, but it's also a hundred percent true. It's the job of universities and governments to fund basic science and basic research, and the fact that we're going to now do it and then create a path and then I'll be there at the end to create a path to commercialization for these phenomenal technologies. That's a healthy ecosystem. That's what should be happening.
0: Right, and that's what happened with semiconductors that did so many things that's happened before. We've, we've proven that that works yeah, it's in, in other amazing. realms.
1: It's truly amazing. Like there is really genuine hope and celebration about this.
0: How do you view the role of the climate billionaires, Tom Steyer, Mike Bloomberg, Bill Gates, John Doerr, Richard Branson, these people, some people look very, like, hooray, like, you know, these big players are now putting their muscle and their their celebrity and brand into the game. And other people say, like, distrust them because they're such creatures of this, you know, hyper capitalism.
1: I mean, right. Call me when you guys live in like a tiny house. Or your consumption <laughs> is not a, what is it, a 65,000 square foot house in Seattle Bill, that Bill Gates owns?
0: And he, he buys offsets Let's Model for his, what private He flies a lot of private jet miles yep. and he buys offsets. Yep. So, but, you know, these guys have a lot of smarts and they, they definitely attract attention yeah. and capital.
1: I'm all for it. I mean, I really like there's a lot to be cynical about and we should. And also everybody get in the pool. I want it all. I want everybody talking about it. I want everybody funding it. I want every, you know, like I, there is no one that I'm going to turn away at this point. I'm thrilled that that's happening because, you know, I sort of can't level a, a moral judgment about the world that we live in, in that regard. Like maybe I don't like everything or anything about Bill Gates, but if Breakthrough Energy Fund can create the, you know, little tiny nuclear reactor in a backpack that allows us to desalinate enough water on the California coast to survive. Great. Please do that.
0: Right. The way I look at those guys is people will listen to them who will never listen to Al Gore or others. Like certain people, they're trusted messengers in important circles.
1: Well, they know how to make money and money gets solutions. (laughs) Money, it works. What sector
0: of technology do you think will give us the best hope of survival? What are you most excited about?
1: Well, I'm really genuinely excited about the basic research. I think that some of that, whether I can invest in it or not, I think there are some incredible things happening around using nature-based solutions and that there's, you know, apparently there are like thousands of microbes that we're just, we don't even know anything about, but you can take these microbes and turn them into like different kinds of fertilizer that don't use nitrogen i mean there's really
0: the soil people are the biggest optimists that i come across yes. and it's like soil is sexy soil is a big deal it's like it's if the soil people are right and those things can really scale we can all breathe a little
1: easier soil is super sexy there's a lot of really incredible regenerative agriculture technologies coming out all the time there it's a company that i'm really trying to figure out how to invest in that is making um seeds, literal seeds to sort of go up against Monsanto that can signal, they're bioengineered to signal when they're sick before they're dead. And you can see the signal from space and then you can reduce dramatically the pesticides that you have to spray, right? Like now we just spray and pray crops like crazy. And if we have these visual signals that are like, there's a mold infestation, you can treat it at the spot. You can have healthier crops overall. You can have healthier soil overall. Like it's this sort of incredible flywheel effect. Yeah. And then the other one that I actually think is a, is a dark horse is, um, like what they sometimes call blue tech, but ocean technologies. So there's, you know, 2,500 vegetables that none of us have ever gotten to eat that just grow in the ocean. There are algae, you know, varieties that are effectively like total protein replacements and algae itself is a huge carbon sink. Like it's very possible that in, in 50 years, the thing that we'll be like, oh, duh about is that the ocean is the best possible solution we have. And we hardly know anything about it.
0: Right. And it's been taking the biggest hit without the oceans, absorbing a lot of the heating, it'd be so much hotter now. And not to mention feeding kelp to cows. So they burp and fart less and that would help. a. Help help an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about climate philanthropy as opposed to you know, other things? Does that have a role? Is that on your radar at all? Because a lot of these, you know, billionaires have a philanthropic arm as well as an investing arm. And is there a role for philanthropy to do
1: That's things that huge. it's too. climate is two percent of philanthropic giving right now. Two percent. Mackenzie, what's her last name now? Bezos, not Bezos anymore. Scott, Scott, thank you. Mackenzie Scott, yes. Mackenzie Scott has given away a phenomenal amount of money. And I think that a grand total of like $5 million of that has gone to climate. The it, That is probably one of the most frustrating failures that I can think of at this exact moment. There was actually a huge positive development in this regard. A few weeks back, the Rockefeller Foundation announced that having turned its attention to vaccines and vaccine distribution, it was now going to pivot the organization toward climate, which is huge,
0: right? Particularly given their legacy of you know that oil money, where that that wealth came from. Yeah. So that gets to, you know, the whole question of we've been talking about incentives, you know, positive, making money. What role is there for pressuring companies? You know, environmental social governance is very popular these days, pressing companies to be less bad. I'm going to divest from, you know, fossil fuels. Is there a role for that? Is that constructive or is that villainizing business?
1: No, that's how we get change, 100%, right? That's how we apply financial incentives to businesses, which gets them to change. I talk to people all the time who talk about what consumers want now that they didn't used to want. And when I think actually about, sometimes I joke actually that I'm one of the last investors in the climate space who really believes in the consumer. I really profoundly believe in the power of the consumer to drive change. We always talk about this collective problem and how individuals can't possibly have an impact. And that lets us kind of off the hook for... It's just business's problem to fix, which it is, and also ours, right? Everyone in the pool. And I look at something like high fructose corn syrup, as an example, we had activism and awareness Mm -hmm. that let us know that high fructose corn syrup is like poison in any amount. And so as a body of consumer, a collective made up of individuals, we said, we don't want that in our food anymore. And for the most part, it went away. And I believe so powerfully, you see all these companies who are doing circular economy type things. They're creating a way to take back used goods, for example, or or tell you what to do with their packaging when you're done with it. All of that is the result of consumer pressure. And so, and then you look at something like the Exxon board takeover. There were the activist shareholders who took two or three board seats Mm -hmm. um, at Exxon who did it not because they said you know, we're just do gooders and we wanna do the right thing.
0: No, those are hard-nosed business people who think there's a better way to use that capital. Yes. To make, yeah.
1: It's bad economics to be a bad actor around the climate. And I 100% think that that message can come from consumers, from other businesses. There's no, you know, we're seeing another, I also share a hairdresser with a renowned economist. <laughs> My hairdresser is like a nexus. I'm his like loser client in terms of who he who he cuts the hair up who said, you know, everybody came out of COP26 really bummed out because governments didn't make the big moves that we were hoping Mm -hmm. that they would. In Mm -hmm. fact, even if every government agrees to every promise they made at COP26, we still won't make 1.5 degrees of warming. But the thing that did come out of COP26 was a whole bunch of banking, a whole bunch of financial institutions starting to make major changes in regulations because risk is a really big motivator. And we are to the point where, from a, a global financial standpoint, we're talking about a risk of zero. We're talking about like insurance and reinsurance companies saying there are entire parts of the globe that will not be insurable, meaning there's no economic activity there, you can't build there, no people can live there, there's climate migration. Like that risk is behind the scenes, regardless of what governments are doing, driving trillions of dollars in. The right direction,
0: right? They're starting to, to see that, uh, and in meaningful time frame, that's coming in closer. But still, we're talking about compounded quarterly earnings growth. You know, mm-hmm. that's what drives earnings. That's what drives the markets. Eventually, the companies you're investing in want to have an exit. They want to go public or be bought. Can we continue to have compounded? Quarterly growth of more 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 stuff on a limited planet because you did the you know, the mining story You admitted I think like you had this sort of wonder and kind of fear of a 14 year old looking at the, the mining operation Yeah, so we're still locked in a system of more
1: We really are and that's the that is Never enough the paradox that I completely acknowledge. I don't know how we I think all of these things have to happen in tandem. We are realizing that, again, growth of any organism will kill you if there's two. you know, that's cancer is. is the only is. thing
0: that grows perpetually. So exactly. that's why there's degrowth now.
1: Right. So there's this conversation about degrowth. There, there is a, an increasing conversation about stakeholder capitalism. There are conversations about changing the way that companies report, the way that they think about profits. All of those things have to happen at the same time.
0: So summing up here, you've you've been 9 months from your shift from reporter to investor, you know, has it changed you personally how you feel about the future?
1: I am weirdly hopeful. I really am. I think that the the awareness is at a crescendo and there's a lot of fear and anxiety, but it is driving a lot of real change. And people are so ingenious. You know, It's really easy to think that our kids will live in this sort of terrible future because of all of this happening, but there's almost equally a chance that they could live in like an energy utopia. There was a great Bloomberg piece that was sort of a thought exercise in imagining what we could do with unlimited energy. And it's pretty remarkable to think what we could solve at that point. And I'm starting to see companies design solutions that are like purpose built for the cheapest electrons on the planet and even including the intermittency. So it's fine if the sun's not shining all the time. We've built a manufacturing process that works with that and is phenomenally cheaper as a result. And I love the idea of just trying to change that mindset because it's in no way is it a barrier, right? It's just an enabler like for the, the 4G transition is a perfect example of what can happen when you go from scarcity. So we had a scarcity of mobile bandwidth on 3G and there was only so much stuff we could do. And then 4G came and an entire economy was built on top of it, like apps that we would never think about being able to exist because there was just ubiquitous broadband access on our phones. Like if we started to think about what we could do with energy in that way, there's nothing we can't accomplish. Look, at some point, extinction is a really powerful motivator. We might lose a lot of humans before we get to the point where we have to fix it. I do not wanna sugarcoat that. This is not a good, this is not gonna be a good future. However, we're gonna figure it out. Every time we have faced extinction before, we invented fire, or the wheel, or electricity, or penicillin, or agriculture, and there were terrible unintended consequences as a result of all of those things. But like we, the, the species, didn't die. I genuinely think we're going to figure it out. And I think the sooner we do it, the better off people really, truly could be.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking with investor and reporter Molly Wood about tech, money, and survival during the climate crisis. Find her podcast, How We Survive, on your favorite pod app. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, exciting, difficult, a lot of things. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of our lives and society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on Apple. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Really does matter. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basili is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.